are in in second kings and one of the things that is amazing to see in what god is trying to teach israel is how he's trying to save his people uh we have been reading about the extraordinary wickedness of these kings and yet in the midst of all of that god continues to work miracles and continues to show signs in an effort to try to get the people to turn back to god And we have seen that Elijah, he's been dramatically rejected by the kings as well as the people. And now Elisha, in a very similar way, is rejected by kings and rejected by the people of Israel. And ultimately, God is going to be bringing judgment. The things that we are seeing unfold in this book is showing uh, that God is now bringing uh, these judgments because of their covenant disobedience, just as Deuteronomy prescribed was, was going to happen. And one of the things I'd like for you to pay attention to tonight as we go through uh, the rest of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 of 2 Kings tonight is to look at what God is showing as to why this is happening. Why are there all of these problems? Why does Israel reject Elisha even though he's doing miracles? Why does the king reject Elisha even though he's a miracle worker and clear signs are being performed? What is going on? Uh, in Israel that is causing these things to happen. I believe that is the message that is uh, underneath what this text is doing. You'll notice in 2 Kings chapter 6 and and in verse uh, 24, we're told that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, musters his, his entire army and he besieges Samaria. And in laying siege of Samaria, it says in verse 25 that there was a great famine uh, that happens in the city of Samaria. Now remember, Samaria is the capital of Israel, and this was typical warfare in that day and time. Instead of just walking up to a city and going to battle, if you had enough strength and enough manpower and enough time, you would just surround the city, cut off all the supply lines, cut off all the food, cut off all the access, and essentially starve the city to death. And, and that's what is happening right here. As it says that, that Syria goes up against Samaria, lays siege to it, and we have a causing here of a great famine that exists in the city of Samaria. And it says there in verse 25 that it gets so bad that a donkey head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cob of d- dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver. All right. Well, the dove's done, you go, wow, that's bad. <laughs> if, we're, if we're buying that, that's, that's pretty severe. But you might read the donkey's head and go, okay, what, what's going on there? I remind you in 1 Kings 10, back in the reign of Solomon, you could import a horse from Egypt for 150 shekels of silver. So that says quite a lot that you can buy a donkey head for half that price at this point. It's telling you that there is extreme, extreme poverty, extreme inflation, and extreme lack of food at this point. It is bad. And so high prices just to buy a donkey head or to buy dung is what is going on in the city. It is a horrible scene of of what's happening in terms of this famine as it strikes Samaria. And then we notice an instance here in verse 26 that the king of Israel is now passing by on the wall. And a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And the king answered her, 
verse 27, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you from the threshing floor or from the wine press? Now, that's sarcasm. <laughs> uh, help, help. And the king just says, what do you want me to do for you? Do you think there's something on the threshing floor to give you? We're, we're selling donkey heads for 80 shekels of silver. Uh, do you think there's something in the wine press? No, we're selling dung for a few shekels of silver. What do you think I'm going to be able to do for you? I'm in the same situation as you. I'm absolutely no better off. How do you think I'm going to help in the midst of this severe crisis? Now notice that in verse 28, the king asks her, well, what is your trouble? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give me your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. This is our problem. By the way, how bad is it? How bad is the famine? How severe is the siege that we've come to the point now that women are bartering over, okay, we'll eat my child today and your child tomorrow because that's how little food there is in the city of Samaria at this point. And I want you to notice now what happens in verse 30. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath him on his body and he said, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. All right, you have a very interesting contrast happening and you might catch that this sounds like a cruel twist of the wisdom of Solomon. You might remember when Solomon was king, we had this curious moment where we have two women who are arguing over whose child uh, this is. They both bear a son, but one dies. And so they're arguing over, well, this one's mine. No, she says this one's mine. And so Solomon's wisdom was divide the child in half. And therefore that'll solve the problem. Well, the real mother says, no, no, don't do that. You can let the other woman have the child which then indicated to Solomon who the true mother was. And you might remember that that moment caused all of Israel to recognize that the wisdom of God was in Solomon uh, with that ruling that he gave. Now notice this reversal, this twist that happens here, where now we have two women and here's this woman looking for justice. I, we said that we would eat my son today and then we're supposed to eat her son tomorrow. And here is the response of the king of Israel. Elisha must die today. There's the wisdom of the king on display. Elisha must, uh, must die today, which also might remind you of something. You might remember that after Elijah had a tremendous victory at Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal are killed, you have Jezebel saying almost verbatim the very same words of what we see the king of Israel saying here. And may God do so to me and, and, and more if Elijah's not dead by the next day. Remember, that's when Elijah then flees for, for his life. A similar picture is being given here where now the great response of the king of Israel is not the wisdom of God, but rather the wisdom of Jezebel, the person that we need to have pay the penalty for the condition in Samaria is clearly Elisha. 
this is all Elisha's fault. That's the thinking of the king of Israel. This is because of him. Very interesting. Verse 32 tells us God is always informing Elisha of what's going on. And verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him and the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived to Elisha, he said to the elders, do you see how this murder has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And so Elisha, all of a sudden at the moment says, well, I just heard what's going on before the messenger even said it. God informing Elisha that the king is now trying to take off my head today. So bar the door before the messenger gets here because the, his master, the king, is coming right behind. Verse 33 and. While he was still speaking these things, the messenger came down and said to him, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Here's the great message from the king in the messenger's mouth. Great wisdom of the king. The trouble that is going on is from God. So therefore, why should I bother waiting for him anymore? A really interesting perspective. Because obviously the text has borne this out as well as the covenant promises in Deuteronomy, which state that these kinds of things were going to happen, pestilence and famine and all kinds of difficulties, if they turn their back on God. That's why this is happening. That's why Syria is winning. That's why they are successful in their raids. And that's why they're besieging the cities, because this is God's condemnation. But notice the response is not, this trouble is from God. We should seek the Lord. We should think about what we've done wrong. We should consider how we can repent. We should look at what God has told us to do and get back in his graces. No, the response of the king is, what's the point of serving God? Why should we wait for God any longer? Why should we trust him? And I want to pause on that thinking for a minute because this is a natural temptation to fall into is that sometimes what happens is that trouble will cause us to give up on God. And what God is always intending is that trouble would move us closer to God. That God is hoping that this trouble and this invasion and this famine that is going on will cause the king and cause the people to seek the Lord with all of their heart. To understand that these things are by the power of God and within God's sovereignty and within God's ability. And yet the king shows a very common response that sometimes we can fall into. Things go bad. Trouble has come. So why bother with God? Why do I need to serve him anymore? Life isn't going according to plan. So why mess with him? What's the point? Why trust him? Why have faith? Why serve him? Why worship him? It's pointless because I'm not getting what I want out of him. That's the response of the king of Israel. Why should I even wait anymore? And I hope that we would think about why the king is foolish because these are the times that we need God the most. These are the times that are supposed to awaken our souls and cause us to press into God all the more. And yet so often it can be the difficulty will move us further from God. And that's not what God wants in our trials and in our hardships. 
but rather when the hardship comes to realize that we need God all the more. We need to trust him all the more. And the king's great wisdom at this moment is kill the prophet and let's stop waiting on God. That's the answer. We don't need God and kill the messenger. Well, I think it is interesting to think about what would happen next. If I were to put you in the moment, what would you suppose God would do with the response of the king of Israel at this moment? Says the response of Israel to the besieging and the famine is kill Elisha and why bother with God? What would you suppose the next line would be? Notice chapter 7 and verse 1. God's going to make a promise. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain of, of those whose hand on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said to him, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. What a fascinating picture is the king has come. He wants Elisha dead. He's completely rejected God. What are we waiting for God anymore? Those troubles from God, he's the issue. Let's not follow God anymore. Let's stop worshiping him. And Elisha's response to that message is things are going to get way better tomorrow. I would have expected it to be God's going to just burn this place up for how awful you are. But rather you are seeing Elisha promising things are going to get better tomorrow. Now, those are high prices to have a sea of flour for a shekel and two seahs of barley for, for a shekel. But that's better than dung and a donkey head. The whole point is, yeah, it's going to be expensive, but at least it's going to be there. At least you're going to have flour and barley. The food is going to come back. A dramatic reversal is going to happen. In fact, it's such a dramatic reversal being predicted. The captain of the army on the right hand of the king of Israel says, that's not even possible. I mean, think about the wording there. If the Lord himself should open the windows of heaven, could that even happen? The response is complete disbelief. That can't happen. God can't do that. There's no way it could possibly get better tomorrow. That's what he says. And what Elisha responds with is fascinating because he says, well, guess what? You're going to see the reversal, but you're not going to enjoy it. You are going to be cut out of this blessing. You're going to be cut out of this restoration. You're going to be cut out of this wonderful reversal that God is accomplishing. You're not going to enjoy it all because of your disbelief. And I want us just to think about what God is doing here, because to me, it is fascinating to see the character of God, that the answer that chapter seven and verse one is not everybody in Israel is going to die for their sins, but instead, I'm going to do a great reversal that you will not believe. God is trying to generate faith. 
God is still trying to wake Israel up and get them to have faith in God and trust him and look to his word and look to his promises and trying again to say, look, I can change your condition. I can reverse things. And the response of Israel is, no, he can't. No, he can't. Even if God opened up the skies of heaven, there's no way. He could solve this problem. Now hold that in your mind because what happens next is truly fascinating. And I think even intended a a, a touch of humor as the story unfolds. Because in verse 3 we're told, There are four men who are lepers at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And so here they're sitting and they have this interesting conversation. It says there in verse 3, They said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Notice the thinking here. This is how bad it is in the city of Samaria. If we just keep sitting here at the gate, we're going to die. If we go into the city of Samaria, that's not going to help us any. They're just as bad off as us. We're going to die. We might as well try to surrender to the Syrians because if they take us in, at least we live. And if they kill us, that was going to happen anyway. So practical thinking that's going on here in regards to this. And so we're told in in verse 5, at twilight, they go to the camp of the Syrians. Notice the middle of verse 5. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. That had to be the most stunning revelation ever. Here we are. We have been surrounded by the Syrians. In fact, we're told in chapter 8, it's a seven-year famine. Seven years that this has been going on. Seven years you have the Syrians causing this in Israel. And to go out to the Syrian camp and figure, well, we're doomed. And they walk out and we're told there in verse 5, there's not anyone there. Well, how did that happen? How is God going to cause this great reversal? How is there going to be food in the city again? What made the Syrians leave all of a sudden? Look at verse 6. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of of Egypt to come against us. And so they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. The Syrians have this thing won. They're eating their children in the city. It's so bad. And God makes it sound like the kings and horses and chariots of other nations are approaching. So that they leave their tents, they leave their animals, they leave their food, they leave their money, they just leave everything behind. In fact, we're going to read in just a moment. They leave their armor. They just throw it all off and they just flee. Verse 8, and when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent 
And they ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came and entered another tent and carried off the things that are in it went and hid them. You just imagine just this jaw-dropping moment as, the, as they walk into one tent and there's food, there's drink, there's stuff, there's money, and they, they sit down and just start eating. And when they're done with carrying everything out of that, then they go to another tent and do the exact same thing. But then notice what happens next. We're told there in, the, in verse 9, but then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. After plundering two tents, enjoying their fill, they stop and go, this isn't right. We can't do this all on ourselves. We can't keep this good news to ourselves. We can't suppress the information and just enjoy it for ourselves. We have to tell Samaria. We have to tell the king. We've got to let them know that, look, they've left. And look, we can plunder everything. And so they send message back in verse 10. They tell the gatekeepers of the city, we came to the camp of Samaria, of the Syrians. And behold, there was no one to be seen or heard. Nothing but the horses And the donkeys tied to the tents there. And so they go back and they tell the good news. We went out there. Everything got left behind. There's not a single Syrian left. But the food's there and the animals are there. Everything's still there. Verse 11, the gatekeepers tell the people in the king's household. Verse 12, the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp and to hide themselves in the open country, thinking that when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. King of Israel again, complete unbelief. The message comes, nobody's there. We just have to go out there and take it. And the king goes, no, no. Here's what's happened. This is a trap. This is a trick. And the Syrians are hiding past their camp. And as soon as we all come out there, they're going to mow us down and go right into the city and take it all over. So one of the king's servants in verse 13 says, well, let's take some of uh, let some men take five of the remaining horses. By the way, please hear that. There's five remaining horses in all of the king's uh, army. We're on desperate times. Let us take Five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have perished. Let us send and see. And so they took two horsemen and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians saying, go and see. And so they went after them as far as the Jordan. Behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in haste and the messengers returned and told the king. I I love that visual. As they're roaming the Israel countryside all the way to the Jordan, all that you start finding are, well, there's some armor helmets and there's a breastplate. There's a sword laying there. There's a cloak over there. They just are throwing stuff off of themselves to lighten the load to run faster because they believe that the armies are about to kill them. But God had just sent a sound of it and they all took off and fled. 
The messengers returned and told the king, verse 16, Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. And so a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and the two seas of barley were sold for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Exactly what God had said yesterday comes completely to pass. Exactly as it was told. And it says there, the people went out and they plundered the camp and they take all these things. But notice in verse 17, the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. Remember, that's the captain who said that couldn't happen if the skies were opened up by God himself. Well, it's just so happened that day that he was put in charge of the gates of the city and was standing there. And as soon as news was heard that there was food and supplies to be plundered, the people of Israel ran out of the city in such a rush that they trampled him over to fulfill exactly what God had said, that you would hear the good news, but you wouldn't participate in it. Just exactly as God had said. And such the rest of the the, the chapter lays that out in the picture of verse 20. And so it happened to him for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. It's an amazing picture of God's power, an amazing picture of God's reversal. Even in the face of all of this unbelief and in the face of nobody believing that God can turn the tables, here is God and he is acting for his people. And notice in one day we go from Nobody can eat anything and we're going to eat our children too. Now we can have flour and barley. I want you to see what God was displaying about his power. Not only in regards to the economics of this nation, but also even to the military might. If God wants an army to leave in a heartbeat, he can cause that to happen. You make, oh no, we're doomed, we're surrounded. Just give it a day and watch them all run. You are seeing God in control over these things, that God can give military victory to a nation or give it defeat. Nobody would have believed the day before that Israel would be victorious the next day and that the Syrians would would run for their lives and be defeated. No one would believe that the economics would be reversed where now that things are going to be so much better one day later. Here is the picture that God wants to see is to see his power and why they can trust him. That he has complete power over these things. He has complete power over the nation. Complete power over the economy. Complete power over the military strength. He's got it all covered and in one day can flip it over. Now here's the big picture. The thing that I want us to ponder for a moment. You have the lepers coming back into the city. Proclaiming the good news that Israel's famine condition has been reversed. Syrians have left their camp. They've left everything behind. The animals are there. The food is there. Everything has been left behind. And the good news reaches back to the king. And the king does not believe the message. And I want you just to think about for a moment. Well, why doesn't he believe this? Why doesn't he believe this? And your initial response might be, well, the reason he doesn't believe it, because it's too good to be true. It just seems too impossible. How could it be that the Syrians had left and now all of a sudden this food is available? 
But I want you to remember that yesterday, Elisha said, things are going to dramatically reverse tomorrow. That was said that messenger, captain, and king would know. Elisha said, here's what's going to happen. Everything is going to change tomorrow. And now food is going to be available. And I think it is so interesting to consider that God can declare in advance what he's going to do, do it, and people still don't believe. That's what's happening here. God said, here's what's going to happen. The next day it happens. The news comes up to the king, and the king goes, no, that can't be that. That can't possibly be. God did not certainly do that. And this is a big issue that is found throughout the scriptures, the warning that is given to us about the problem of unbelief. So dramatic is God's concern about the problem of unbelief. You might remember a very important question, a rhetorical question, that is made in Isaiah 53 regarding the suffering servant and all that the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to accomplish. The very first verse is, who has believed what he has heard from us? And the implied answer is, not Israel. They're not going to believe. That's not going to be their response. That's why the New Testament quotes this verse into the New Testament and says, that's Israel's rejection. They're not going to believe, even though it's told to them, and even though they see it happen when Christ comes, they're still not going to believe. It is a seemingly shocking thing. But it is a common problem, and that's why God speaks to it so many times, that God wants us to believe what he says. That if God tells us something, that we would, with 100% certainty, believe it. So that if Jesus tells his apostles, feed the crowds, They don't turn around and go, there's not enough food to do that. But okay, you have the power to do that. Or if God tells Moses to feed Israel meat, the response is not supposed to be, well, where am I going to get enough meat for all these people? But that God can open the windows of heaven if God says for the crowd to eat. That God, if God tells the king of Israel that food is going to be available in Samaria the next day, he wanted the king to believe it. And by the way, we have seen this kind of great faith in this book because we have seen a widow in Elijah's day believe that as long as Elijah is in the house, that flower's not going to run out. And we have seen the widow in Elisha's day believe that if I can get enough jars from enough neighbors, I can fill up enough oil to be able to sell it to pay my debts. 
Those are illogical things. But friends, if God says that you will have enough oil to get out of your debt or that the flour in your jar is not going to run out, they believed it. Because God said it. If God says it, will we believe it? And that's the great faith of Abraham who believed that Isaac was the promised child. And that's how he can raise his hand with a knife. Believing that, well, I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. Because you believe when God says it. We are to believe what God has said. And the New Testament makes it a strong point to us how much God wants us to have this kind of faith. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of promise. All right, stop. We're the heirs of promise. And God says, here's what I wanted to do. My purpose, my plans, they always happen. They are unchangeable. They are always accomplished and no one can stop it. But I want to prove it to you. I want to show it all the more clearly to you, the unchangeable nature of my purpose. So here's what I'm going to do. It says he guaranteed it with an oath. Not only when I say things does it always happen, but I'm going to take an oath so that through these two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What's the point? We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. You see what God's trying to say? God saying, I want you to attain this hope. I want to make sure you do not miss out. I want to make sure that unbelief does not cause you to come up short. So here's what I'm going to do. I could have just simply said, I don't change. Which, by the way, God has said that. I don't change. There's no shadow of variation turning with him. His purposes don't change. He always accomplishes his will. But then he said, here's what I'll do on top of that. I'll make an oath. And I can't lie. If I say I'm doing something, it has to happen. Why is God going out of his way for that? He says there, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope that is before us. I love that God tells us, I don't want you to fail. I love that God says, I want to prove why you should believe in me. I want to show you why you can trust my words. Because again and again, you see those who don't believe. And the king of Israel is put on display in this text to show terrible unbelief. God said it would happen and then did it. And then still are unwilling to believe about that. And as much as we can blast the king of Israel for his response to be, why trust in God, kill Elisha, and that certainly can't be true, even though I heard that yesterday, is 
there's something that God has said to us that we don't believe? Is there something that God has said to us that we don't believe? Is there something that God has done that you say, I'm not really sure if that's true? Do you believe your sins have been forgiven? Or do you think, well, my sins are pretty bad. I don't really know if he's truly forgiven all my sins. Do we believe that God loves us? Do we believe that God listens to our prayers and answers them? Do we believe when God says, I will never leave you or forsake you? Do you believe that there is eternity for you to be with him forever? Do you believe there is a judgment? Do you believe that God can change your life? Do you believe he can change everything even tomorrow? Like we've looked at in this very text. Do you believe that God can still accomplish his purposes through you? Can I use this morning's lesson? Do you believe that God can accomplish his purposes even when life doesn't go according to plan? Do we believe in what God has said? Because all of these things God has said, he has repeatedly stated these things to us. And what God wants us to do is to hold on to those things so that our doubts are erased and we do not fall short in unbelief. But rather, when God says those words, that those things would become an anchor to our soul, that become strong encouragement to us so that we will seize the hope that lies ahead. That there is no reason for us to not believe. And as always, the greatest proof is always Jesus and the cross. Where God says, I will tell you in advance what I will do. Then I will do it. Now will you believe it? He told you in advance. He would send his son. He would offer him up as a sacrifice and then raise him up again. And then Jesus walked around saying, that's what I'm here to do. And then he does it. Now, what can God not do if he can do that? Seize the hope that stands in front of you. Believe in the words and the promises of God. And do not fall because of unbelief. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for these wonderful promises. Thank you for your word that does not change. Thank you for the hope that we have in knowing that your purpose is unchangeable and that you cannot lie so that we can find our hope in you. And Lord, thank you because we need it when life is rough. We need it because sometimes we feel like these things may not be. And so, Lord, thank you for challenging our unbelief and waking up our eyes and causing us to see that everything you say comes true. And, Lord, we look forward to promises that lie ahead. We look forward to being with you. We look forward to seeing you face to face. We look forward to paradise. We look forward to eternity with you. We look forward to fellowship without end. Lord, we look forward to rest. God, please keep these things in our hearts. May we never doubt 
what you have told us that you have done for us, what you are doing for us, and what we can expect of you in our future ahead. Thank you for being the father that you are. Thank you for the hope that you give us. And thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us through our difficulties. In Jesus' name, amen. And you sing an invitation song now. We do invite you to come to Jesus and come to the promises of God to see all that he has offered you. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be a child of God. You can enjoy his blessings. You can be in relationship with him. You can have no fear of death, but a certainty of eternity with God forever. Can we help you in any way come to that? Won't you come now while we stand, while we sing?